Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Title companies had a huge year last year, and we saw lenders, real estate companies, and others expanding into title to get in on some of that record volume. But just like lenders, the first quarter has seen those numbers come back to earth. On today's Housing Wire Daily podcast, I'll be talking with reporter Brooklyn Hahn about who gained market share and which companies might be rethinking their title strategy. We've got a lot to talk about, so let's jump in. Brooklyn, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Love having you here. We've got so much to talk about. We've got lots of title news. So that's where I wanted to start. We got some pretty amazing numbers from the American Land Title Association about title volume last year. And you wrote that story up. What What did you find there? Sure. So American Land Title Association, um, published its market share analysis for Q4 2021 and full year 2021 um, late last Friday. Uh, And overall, the industry saw nearly a 36% year-over-year increase in title insurance premium volume in 2021 for a $7 billion spike, um, which is pretty impressive. Um, you know, overall, the industry generated uh, $26.2 billion in premiums last year compared to $19.2 billion um, in 2020. So that's, you know, a really sizable increase and quite impressive, but also understandable given the, you know, huge refi volumes we were seeing, especially at the start of 2021. Um, you know, the top underwriters by market share, uh, was not too hugely, um, you know, uh, exciting. There wasn't any major differences, um, especially within the top five. Um, First American Title Insurance Company uh, had a market share of 20.5%. Old Republic uh, was second with 14.8%. Chicago Title Insurance uh, had 14%. And Fidelity had 13.5, and Stewart had 8.9. It should be noted, though, that Chicago title is part of Fidelity. Um, so, you know, that is definitely uh, the largest uh, title insurer by market share, without a doubt. But, you know, from there, obviously, Stewart's market share has definitely dipped a bit since, um, you know, what was seen in you know, as recently as 2019 when the market share was 10.62%. So, you know, things are definitely uh, rising. You know, they're going, they've went down for Stuart, but they've definitely um, rebounded a little bit um, throughout the course of 2021, which was good for them. They definitely went on a huge acquisition spree um, in 2021, and that definitely has helped some of their market share, I think. But, you know, what was really interesting is the overall market share for the big four title insurers is now at a little over 71%. And that's, you know, a pretty big drop compared to what where it was not that long ago. Um, you know, in 2019, it was roughly an 85% market share. So it's interesting to see how the independent title insurers are, you know, eating up more market share, which is 
really interesting and definitely, I think, somewhat unexpected for sure. The other top 10 title insurers were Westcore Land Title, Commonwealth Land Title, um, WFG, Title Resources Guarantee Company, and um, DOMA, which had a 1.9% market share. Yeah, really interesting to see sort of the the movement and and who grabbed what market share. It's not surprising when you look at the volume there that so many lenders and even real estate companies and other companies last year were, were looking to add title to their core services that they were going to offer because, you know, it's like, hey, here, let's get let's get some of the piece of this pie. We have seen already, though, that with falling, falling volumes, some of that commitment to title has, has already shifted. So we had in the, in the Q1 earnings of some of the lenders, they're like, Hey, you know, we know we talked about title and these other things. We might not be doing that right now. You know, that that's on the back burner. So I think that's just really typical for the cycles of, you know, real estate, um, and mortgage where it's like, you know, when it's boom times, everyone wants in on title. Uh, when it, when it's not, then people kind of pull back a little bit. And I know that you also, uh, did the earnings for DOMA. You, you just reported that out yesterday. Tell us how their first quarter went. Yeah. So, I mean, like with the lenders you were just talking about, uh, earlier in 2021, DOMA really seemed all in on, you know, getting into appraisal and the home warranty spaces, which they view as kind of adjacent to what they do as a title insurer. Um, but after a not too stellar first quarter, they definitely appeared and seemed more cautious towards kind of entering those spaces, which is definitely understandable. So in the first quarter of 2022, uh, DOMA recorded a gap net loss of $50.026 million compared uh, to a net loss of $11.8 million a year prior. And in addition, the uh, title insurer's revenue was down 12% year over year from $127.8 million in Q1 of 2021 to um, $112.2 million in Q1 of 2022. So those are definitely not great numbers, um, but interestingly enough, DOMA did see a 40% year-over-year increase in market share uh, for Q1, coming in at 1.4%, which is not too far off the 1.9% that they saw for uh, 2021 as a whole. Um, so that's definitely you know some good news there. Uh, in addition, you know their title orders were down kind of across the board. But their uh, refinance orders dropped by only 20% compared with some of the other title insurers that I know saw, you know, close to 60% decreases, year-over-year decreases in um, refinance order volume. So, you know, that's definitely good news for them on that front. But, you know, with this dip in revenue, with the net loss, you know, not really appearing to be doing a whole lot better. Um, they did end up laying off uh, about 15% of their workforce, which is about 310 people uh, last week. So, you know, it's understandable considering that they're still trying to increase profits and they have to make cuts where they need to. But, uh, you know, I think that's really one of the first big job cuts that I've seen in title, unlike in the mortgage space, which you know, as refinance volume has decreased, there's been a ton of layoffs and things like that. But yeah, it was it was definitely a more subdued call overall. Definitely a lot of caution, and they 
seem optimistic and positive that they'll be able to adapt and kind of grow into this changing market, but they don't seem very positive about you know, the future of the mortgage market in the next few months. You know, it, it just mirrors what uh, we're seeing across the board, right? I mean, title can't outrun, you know, whatever's happening in mortgage. That Those two things are super related. So definitely falling volumes affects everybody. Um, and interesting to see that, you know, have that big report from Alta about what last year looked like. And then the reality of this year is so different, which is exactly the same for mortgage and real estate, right? It's all all related, but will be interesting to keep an eye on the title space and see some of, you know, do we see more consolidation? As you, as you mentioned, you know, Stuart went on an acquisition spree. They're going to continue that or other smaller companies going to look to look to be bought. Are we going to see market share, you know, shift a little bit? So title will be interesting to see. And, and also interesting, like I said, to see who decides to hold on to title during this time and who doesn't. So I wonder what the long-term strategy there is. Like, is it better to, you know, in a down market like this, go ahead and invest in your title and so that the next time we we have a, a big cycle that, you know, you're already well prepared or are we going to see most people jump ship on title? We'll see. I mean, again, we we just came off of a pretty historic two years that even in a, you know, in, a, in your normal, you know, cyclical part of, of real estate, you just don't see that very often that might be a once in a lifetime event because of, you know, what, what facilitated it demographically with the pandemic, you know, with the, with the fed um, doing all that they did that lowered interest rates. Like I, I just, it's hard to imagine that opportunity coming around again. Of course we, none of us imagine that one, but that's not a normal cycle. So it will be interesting to see who sticks with title. Um, that's not normally in the title mm-hmm. space. And we'll we'll look to you to keep reporting on that. Let's let's shift a little bit and talk about markets. So we've talked about the fact that volume's down. It's not really from what we can tell from a lack of demand, but just a complete lack of supply. We're down to almost still. Um, I think we're above like forty thousand or something above last last year's really dismal um, inventory levels. But we're still almost at a historic low. So you do reporting for our magazine on different markets. Um, around the country. So as you talk to real estate agents in different markets, what are you seeing? Sure. So, you know, across markets, they're definitely seeing a bit of a slowdown from what a lot of agents have termed like the frenetic energy and the frenetic markets that they saw last spring and summer. Um, But even though things are slowing down, it's slowing down to what, you know, pre-pandemic they would say is a really, really good market. And just because everything was going at such a breakneck speed for so long, it now feels like, oh, this is this is a slow market when in fact it's still, you know, a really great market and a very strong seller's market in a lot of places. In some of the more coastal areas and kind of the I guess more traditional, expensive metropolitan areas like Los Angeles, parts of Oregon, um, and you know parts of the East Coast. They're definitely seeing some slowdowns in some of the, you know, less typical markets like Rapid City, South Dakota, Fort Collins, Colorado, things like that. Things are still pretty hot and moving quickly. Um, so it's definitely still a seller's market, still, uh, you know, hot market conditions, prices are still, you know, elevated for sure. Um, a lot of agents are saying that they 
are there's more sensitivity to overpricing and you know when they do a listing presentation to a potential client and to a potential seller um, obviously the seller wants to price their home at the high end because you know they've been seeing all these reports on you know the TV news and things like that about homes going for more and more and more and you know the neighbors down the street just sold for 15,000 over there asking so they're like well why can't we sell for that and you know they can't right now and because more you know, there's the interest rates have gone up inflation is definitely a concern and buyers have less power so they're not able to you know go 20,000 over in a bidding war or something like that so there's more sensitivity to that and then you know we're definitely seeing reports out of like Redfin and some other places that they're seeing more and more homes dropping their list price and having price reductions. So, you know, I think really if you're thinking about listing your home right now, obviously it's still a great market. It's still, you know, a strong spring selling market, but, you know, be sensitive of where you're pricing the home. Did, can you give us some uh, specific examples of the local markets that you talked to? Sure. So um, I recently spoke with some agents in uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, um, which was Realtor.com's number one housing market for spring of 2022, um, which, you know, definitely is a bit out of the way and not necessarily, um, you know, a traditional hot market. Um, so it was interesting to chat with some agents out there. You know, the median list price of a home is up 21.4% year over year. Um, but still, that only brings you to 318,000, which is well below, you know, other metropolitan areas across the country. Um, but, you know, agents have seen people move kind of from all over the country, a lot of like Washington State, Oregon, California, um, you know, people looking to get out of those areas and also just kind of explore all of the natural beauty um, that is kind of in and around Rapid City. It's, you know, really close to the Black Hills. It's close to Mount Rushmore. There's great hiking and camping and fishing. Um, you know, anything you want to do outside, it, they pretty much have to offer. Um, and, you know, it's been, it, they say it's been really interesting to see the city kind of grow and change as more people have moved in. Um, you know, there wasn't really any great arts or a ton of variety in restaurants, but, you know, as the city has kind of expanded, you know, there's more theater, there's different cuisines and things to try. So it's, you know, becoming more metropolitan in that sense. I think it's really interesting when you see those, I don't know what you would call them as far as like, uh, I wouldn't say like tier two, tier three, and those aren't like, I'm not making a judgment call on the quality of the city, just the size of the city. Like, I don't know where they fall in population, but, you know, definitely off the beaten path. But when you have so many people who are moving from coastal areas, from higher cost areas into places like that, it really just changes everything. So, it, you know, if the people, if it was just like a population growth in South Dakota, that'd be one thing, but you're, you're having people move in from really expensive areas who have lots more money to spend. And I would think absorbing much of the inventory that is there. Yes. Yeah. They definitely are having inventory issues out there. Um, and that's part of what's driving, you know, all the rapid price increases and the huge year over year gains that we're seeing there. Um, but 
you know, it's not as dire as it is in some areas. Um, but, you know, they are seeing bidding wars and things like that, which they didn't really experience pre-pandemic. Right. I, I think right now it's really um, interesting that that is the Realtor.com number one hottest market. <laughs> no one might have predicted that potentially. So it feels like we've gone through also waves of like how close you are to San Francisco or different coastal areas and like, okay, there's the first wave and then go out from there and then go out from there, you know. So we've seen like Boise from the beginning of the pandemic was just, it was actually hopping before that, but then just got super hot and so it, it's just interesting to see what comes up on this list. I know um, in my area in Texas, um, I was talking with some neighbors and someone's like, yeah, my mom's moving from California and she couldn't find this. So she did that. And, you know, somebody else was talking about, oh, California money. You know, if you're in an area that, you know, has seen an influx of people from a more expensive area, there's there's a little bit of uh, saltiness there because it's like, oh, yeah, well, they're going to come in and just everything gets, you know, uh, kicked up. And I think that that's why, you're really seeing an artificial, like you said, sellers are like, oh, I can do this. It's fine. It's because those people from those areas to them, it's not a lot. I mean, they think they're getting a, a bargain, but you know, if you've, if you've been living in those areas, you realize this is just um, pretty, pretty far out there. So interesting to think about local markets and what's happening. We know that real estate is not just local, but hyper-local. And, uh, I always love uh, reading what you're what you're finding out about there. Let's talk a little bit about um, going back to earnings, but also real estate. Let's talk about some of the iBuyers. So we have had um, some of the iBuyers put out their earnings reports and seeing what's going there. And actually, there's some good news there. So tell us about Open Door first. Yeah, so Open Door uh, turned its first profit during the first quarter of 2022. Um, it had a net income of 28 million, which is you know quite exciting for them. Um, you know, there are really two main iBuyers kind of on the market right now. There's OfferPad and OpenDoor. And OfferPad, um, you know, there was a lot of questions about if iBuyers could ever turn a profit and OfferPad was the first to do so um, during the fourth quarter of 2021. And it again, uh, you know, recorded a profit during the first quarter of the year and you know open door quickly followed i think a couple of days after when they released their earnings so um you know it's really exciting to see both i buyers turning a profit um and kind of gaining some success uh you know especially with the market where it is right now um and you know it's it, some people are holding on to their homes cuz they're not sure if they can get into a new one or even afford a new one. So, um, you know, it's it's interesting to see how iBuyers are doing. Um, and then also with the backdrop of Zillow, you know, shuttering their iBuying program um, and, you know, having very little success with that. So it's great that OfferPad or that both OfferPad and OpenDoor were able to turn profits. Um, you know, OpenDoor is really positive um, about, you know, how they're going to approach kind of the uncertainty in the market and everything right now. Um, you know, they feel that their value add really is that if the market does go and take, you know, a downturn, sellers may be, you know, hesitant to sell their home or concerned about selling their home because they're not sure if they'll get an offer on it, which is like, almost insane to think about right now considering how quickly homes are going but if it does get to that point you know open door is 
excited to see how that will impact them um, because basically it's a guaranteed offer that your home is going to sell. And so they really feel like that's kind of their value add and what they can give to home sellers um, right now or, you know, in the future if the market does take a downturn. I think there's also some really um, interesting things about some dynamics of our market right now that make iBuying attractive for sellers and buyers. Um, so for instance, you know, if, if you're in a situation like we are now where, you know, we do have construction delays, we have supply chain issues, we have labor issues, it's taking a long time to get a house done. So if you're, if you're in an existing home and trying to get into a new home, that timeline can be really, you know, thrown off right now. And so the thing that iBuyers offer is certainty, and that's going to be really attractive to people who Number one, maybe they're, they, they've contracted to build a house, but the timeline's uncertain. Or they're looking at this market and they're like, yeah, I want to sell my home to an iBuyer because then I can take, I can figure out my next house. I don't, you know, those two things don't have to coordinate as closely as, as normal. So you can, you know, sell it to an iBuyer and stay in there for two months because you're still trying to get your house. The timing of it, it, it really, um, flexes to, to meet timing. And I feel like timing right now is really difficult for people. So I can understand why, even though, you know, in this low volume environment, you think, oh, how are they going to do? But there are some factors that I think really lead um, into, you know, them being a, a good option for people. So it'll be interesting to look at. And, you know, I was, I was talking to Tracy Velt yesterday about the Zillow situation. And, you know, generally speaking, people feel like it's not that iBuying is a bad model. It's just that Zillow wasn't position to do it well. And also it's just completely out of their, their realm. Really they're a data and analytics company. They're a, you know, they're a company that lists homes. So to have assets on their, you know, to, to be buying assets and holding is just really a, a very strange part for them. It didn't work out, but that doesn't mean that I buying in general is, is, you know, a bad model. So interesting and encouraging to see some iBuyers making it work even in the first quarter, which was very challenging. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, it'll be a kind of an interesting future for the iBuyers. Um, and, you know, kind of going back to the idea of certainty, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, home buyers right now that are searching for homes and, you know, are surprised to get in uh, as quickly as they are in some markets because they figured they'd have to be searching forever. And then all of a sudden, you know, an offer is accepted and they still have to sell their current home. And, iBuyers can definitely help them in that situation as well if they need to get out quickly. It's it's really in this really volatile environment, there are different factors now than, you know, even and I feel like it changes every month. I feel like we're in a different, you know, if you look at how fast the mortgage rates uh, you know, went up, that was the velocity of that a uh, couple of raises was pretty big. And so, you know, it things conditions changed even in a month and some of the the data we have on, you know, people still being interested and in, in all that, it's it's lagging because those people got an interest rate lock maybe um, when it wasn't quite so high. So it'll be something to keep our eye on. Uh, this is the rest of this year is going to be fascinating to watch. Um, so Berkeley, tell us what um, you're looking at next and some of the things we can look forward to your, your reporting on um, the rest of this week and next. Sure. So, um, you know, one of the big stories that I've been working on for quite a while now is uh, a story about RESPA and kind of the level of enforcement with RESPA and what's been going on with the CFPB and 
all this gray area around RESPA and, you know, what's allowed, what's not, uh, these educational opportunities, quote unquote, that, you know, maybe something that's a various innocent catered luncheon at, you know, a hotel or a conference center where a title insurer talks about uh, maybe they're offering a new AOL product after the Fannie Mae announcement or something like that. And there's no, you know, there's no quid pro quo type scenario going on all the way to, you know, these weekend getaways um, with golfing and boat rides and things like that. And, you know, how is RESPA being enforced? How is it being viewed and things like that? So that's been it's been a labor of love, um, and it's been really interesting to look into. So that will be going up hopefully in the um, next week or so. I'm also working on a story kind of similar to the one that I reported out a couple weeks ago uh, with Matt Blake uh, about the Keller Williams uh, command app. But this time I'm looking into all of uh, the Compass technology. Um, you know, there's so many agents that... Uh, tout the Compass technology and say that that's why, you know, they chose to move to Compass and how good it is compared to their previous brokerage. Um, But I really, you know, want to kind of get down into it and really talk to some of these agents and find out what they use, what they don't use, what they feel could, you know, be improved, how it does differ from, you know, their previous brokerage or, you know, other tech tools that they've used in the past. Um, So I'm excited to kind of look into that and see how that all is helping agents and, you know, what they still feel they, they need. Love that. That RESPA story is just always evergreen, right? It's, um, you know, we get different guidance from the federal government and, but how you interpret that it's, it really is uh, very difficult for both real estate agents and everybody involved in there to know when they're crossing a line and when it's okay. So really looking forward to the RESPA story, um, as well as the tech story. We know that, you know, real estate agents are relying on that. Um, just like mortgage lenders are just like everyone is if, you know, in a falling volume environment, you've got to be really efficient. So We'll look forward to reading that tech story as well. Brooklyn, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. How have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase-driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW+, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW Plus membership, you get access to longer-form digital content, the HousingWire magazine, member-exclusive rates to in-person events like HousingWire Annual, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.